Um, Father God, you are the fount of every blessing. Um, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and your goodness. We confess that we are prone to wander, um, and so we need your grace each and every day. Um, God, I'm just drawn to um, thank you for the ways that we see you at work in this specific time and place here um, at Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino. Um, God, we thank you for the opportunities you're giving our body um, to learn and talk about women in church leadership. Um, it's a challenge for us to possibly hold different views, but to remain in community and in conversation. So we thank you for your faithfulness as we journey together. Um, we thank you for the, the many opportunities that you've given us to share the good news of your son um, with those outside of our church family. I think about the prison ministry and Discovery Bible Study, Kids Club, Jesus Otaku, um, many more ministries. Um, God, thank you for your provision for volunteers for these ministries, um, and especially for the relationships that are developing there. Um, we ask, God, that you would draw those who don't know you um, to yourself. May they be drawn to your light and to your love. Um, God, we also want to thank you for just the many who are serving behind the scenes. Um, there's so many people serving in different capacities that we just don't see. People who are loving folks in their neighborhoods, um, people who serve in sound or tech or Sunday school or the youth room on Sunday mornings, um, our youth students who are living out their faith counterculturally um, in their school and social environments. And of course, there's lots more examples and many I think that we don't even know about. Um, but Lord, we thank you for giving all of these people your heart your love, perseverance, um, and that they're not motivated by people's approval, but they're just offering up your love that overflows out of them. So God, we just give you many, many thanks this morning. And we thank you, especially for your faithfulness that we've sung about as well. We see you at work um, and we want to participate in what you're doing. As we hear your word today, um, we pray that you would show us yourself and invite us into your work. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. And we're now going to prepare for Bernard's sermon with a passage from 1 Thessalonians. Um, and in this passage, Paul gives us a really beautiful picture of a community that has been transformed by the good news of Jesus. And so you can just let these words wash over you, listen, um, and let them prepare you for, for the, um, to hear the word from Bernard. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, 
for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known elsewhere or everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So I'll invite Bernard up now. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, oh, hearing that passage read just now has uh, suddenly got me reminiscing because I preached that passage uh, almost four years ago to an empty auditorium, uh, the first Sunday of the pandemic uh, in the shutdown, and uh, I couldn't see a single person. There was a camera stand set up there, uh, but nobody standing behind the camera. And uh, there was somebody, I believe, up in the loft, uh, but I couldn't see that person, and otherwise it was completely empty. Um, well, that is such a magnificent passage, and it was striking me, preaching on the body of Christ when there was no body here. <laughs> <laughs> and just a, uh, just a camera to look at, so. Well, each weekday evening, Sue and I watch the PBS NewsHour, and uh, every so often, uh, that program ends with Brief But Spectacular. And uh, last Monday, it featured a high school teacher. So it's a uh, those of you who don't watch the NewsHour, this is a short five-minute segment um, featuring someone talking about their passion. So last Monday, it was a high school teacher, and uh, she started with why she loves being a teacher. Uh, because if you ask somebody to name their teacher, almost everybody can do that. They can name their favorite teacher, and when they do so, it brings a smile to their face. So she loves being in a profession that puts a smile on people's face. Uh, a good teacher leaves lifelong memories. And I still remember the names of all five of my uh, primary school teachers during my four years at Mission Boarding School in Malaysia. I can still see their faces in my mind's eye, and I think of them with fondness. Uh, but that's not the case for the half-year stints I spent either side of that uh, at a school in Edinburgh when I was five and ten. I remember neither the names nor the faces of those teachers, and indeed, I remember very, very little about uh, those two um, periods of time in that school. Well, what makes a good teacher? A good teacher is excited both about her, their subject and about their students. A good teacher believes in their students and in their capacity to learn the subject. A good teacher inspires, challenges, encourages. A good teacher draws out the best in their students, inspiring them to aim higher. And I hope we all had some good teachers whom we still remember, and the thought of them brings a smile to our faces. And uh, I join in uh, with Christine and echo her uh, great thanks for all of you here who are involved in teaching. 
uh, in teaching Sunday school or teaching in other capacities in various ways. And that too set me thinking about, oh, 35 years ago, uh, I taught second grade and realizing, oh my goodness, those people are in their 40s now. Uh, <laughs> Well, the writer of Hebrews calls his work a word of exhortation or of encouragement, and it's essentially a written sermon, so as I said last week, I've been referring to him as the preacher. But he shows all the characteristics of a good teacher, and this is especially so in this section that we've been working through, chapter 511 through 612, on which this is the third and final sermon. Throughout the book, the preacher alternates between exposition and exhortation. So exposition of the superiority of Christ and of his work, he is better, and then exhortation to his readers to remain faithful and continue their spiritual pilgrimage to the end. And this section, 511 to 612, is one of the longer sections of exhortation in the book. The preacher identifies with his readers, the teacher with his students, and throughout he refers to himself in the plural, we, to enhance the rhetorical effect. And sometimes we refers just to himself, sometimes he includes his readers in the we, at other times he addresses them as you, plural. But it's only at the very end, in the last few verses, that I appears. So it is clear throughout that the preacher cares deeply about his readers and is identifying with them. He has high aspirations for them, but this does not prevent him from issuing, challenging them with some harsh words. And he is excited about his material, but concerned about the abilities of his readers. And he began this exhortation uh, segment this way in chapter 5 verse 11. We have much to say about this but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Well what is he so excited about that he has so much to say? In the previous paragraph in chapter 5 he has described how Jesus remained faithful and obedient through suffering all the way to death. He was made perfect, that is he attained the final goal set for him. He finished his course. He completed the mission for which God sent him into the world to be the one true human who remained true to the very end. And thus perfected or completed, he became the fount of salvation and was designated by God to be high priest. And it is this topic of Jesus as the high priest that the preacher wants to expound. Now the high priesthood of Jesus is uh, in general, a much neglected topic. More attention is paid to his other two offices as king and as prophet. But his high priesthood is the major theme of Hebrews. Indeed, it is only in Hebrews that this part of Jesus' identity and ministry is presented. Now, after this current exhortation, the preacher will reiterate that Jesus has become a high priest forever at the end of chapter 6. And finally, more than halfway through his sermon, he will get to his main point at the beginning of chapter eight. Now the main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest. So we are eventually gonna to get to the main point, but we won't get to it until July in what will be our 19th sermon on Hebrews. Um, and then he will give a lengthy exposition of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. But meanwhile, 
He's preparing a foundation and clearing the way. And part of this means preparing his readers with an exhortation prior to the next round of exposition. Now, we looked at the first part of his exhortation six months ago. That was 5.11 to 6.3. And he seems disappointed in his readers. They are slow of hearing. You no longer try to understand. Or as Eugene Peterson renders it in the message, you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. And literally it is, you have become lazy of hearing. And how many teachers have thought that of their students? And his readers have failed to make progress. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Now, this phrase, elementary truths, could be translated as the basic principles of the beginning or the ABCs of the beginning. So they're not even at the beginning, but they need to start again at the beginning of the beginning. And they can't stomach a meaty diet because they've gone back to the milk stage. They've regressed to infancy, all because they have stopped listening. But still the preacher wants them to progress from milk to solid food, from infancy to maturity or to completion. And he has the same framework as any good teacher to take the students forward from the beginning all the way to the end, to the finish line. And so he says, leaving behind the beginning, let us be taken forward to maturity or to completion, to that finish line. Despite his seeming exasperation at the poor attention, he is determined to get them moving again, to get them moving forward all the way to the finish. Again, just like any good teacher. And it is in this context that we had last week's severe warning, chapter six, verses four through eight, which begins with, as I pointed out, with that little word, for. Let us keep moving forward, for if we don't, you're at risk of drifting away, or even falling away completely. So he wants to keep the forward momentum going. And so we come to today's text, chapter six, verses nine through 12 which is the third section of this unit. And it comes in two parts. First, the preacher expresses his confidence in his readers, verses nine and 10, and then his further aspirations for them, verses 11 and 12. He is pleased with their progress, but he wants them to go further. Again, just like any good teacher. So first, he expresses his confidence in verses nine and 10. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So despite the severe warning in verses four through eight and the seeming disappointment in his readers expressed in the paragraph before that, that they're not listening well, he does actually think well of his readers. He addresses them as beloved, dear friends in the NIV. And this is the only time he does so in the entire book. Now, how a teacher addresses their students is of great importance. Right? It conveys whether or not the teacher has goodwill towards the students. And this preacher realizes that after his harsh words, he needs to reassure them of his kind intentions. 
Even although he has spoken like this with the most severe warning in the entire New Testament, they remain his beloved students, his beloved readers. He has goodwill towards them. He is for them. Likewise, how a parent addresses their children is of great importance. There will be times when discipline or warning is necessary, but afterwards children need to be assured that they remain their parents' beloved. So parents continue to ensure them so. And then we have uh, the father beamed with pleasure on Jesus and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He did so when Jesus was baptized. He did so again at the transfiguration. And I think he continued to think the same as Jesus was on the cross, though there was no pronouncement from heaven. And I think he looked down with pleasure and satisfaction as his beloved son remained loyal to the very end, even to death. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. He had reached the goal. He had finished the race. He had arrived at journey's end. And I think the father was profoundly satisfied in his beloved son. And now we are the father's beloved, adopted into his family. So the preacher is convinced of better things for his beloved when it comes to salvation. And in the book of Hebrews, salvation is not so much about getting saved at the beginning of our spiritual journey, it is about faithfully reaching the end. And as I said last week, salvation is not transactional, it is relational. It's not like we buy a ticket at the beginning, uh, we say a prayer, make a confession, and now we have a ticket to get to the end but rather that we enter into this pilgrimage in which we are in relationship with God the whole way. And throughout our earthly pilgrimage, we are in relationship with God, in Christ and through his spirit. And we are in relationship with one another as the beloved community. And the preacher knows his beloved readers and their lives, and he is reassured by their behavior. They are the beneficiaries of God's love and favor, and they have reciprocated this love back to God. And the preacher has evidence of this reciprocation. Their work is evidence of their love. They have shown this love for God by how they have treated the saints, their fellow believers in the household of God. They have helped and are continuing to help other Christians. And the Greek verb translated help here is diakoneo. They engaged in acts of service, of ministry, They've been deacons to one another. And their vertical love for God is expressed horizontally in their love for others in the household of faith. And that love manifests itself in tangible acts of service, of help. Their love is more than simply verbal expression. It's love expressed in concrete action. Now last week I talked about reciprocity. And here we need to expand our model of reciprocity. God has initiated relationship with us in Christ and through his spirit. And true relationship requires reciprocity. We love God in return. But God desires that we show reciprocity to him by loving and serving others. And the early Christians referred to one another as brothers and sisters. They belonged to a new family. Family love is perhaps the strongest love. We will do anything for our close family members. 
for the children, parents, or siblings. And the bonds between early Christians were of similar strength. Now, alas, many families today are dysfunctional, filled with drama and relational breakdown. And sometimes this is a result of harsh parenting or fragile mental health or oppressive expectations. There are many reasons why families fail to be safe places where family members do not feel secure. So at the age of five, my mother went to live with her grandmother when her mother had a mental breakdown and was institutionalized. And I don't know if I ever met her mother, my maternal grandmother. I never heard my mother talk about her, but she talked all the time about her granny. See, she had a secure home where she was loved, and she talked often about her two youth workers. So I grew up knowing their names, because she mentioned them often, Miss Smith and Kathy Brown. And it was clear that they had a lifelong impact on my mother, like good teachers. They enfolded her in their love and led her to Jesus. Well, the Christian family is a beautiful thing, and Paul is quick to address the various people who have helped him as beloved, so that language is all the way through his epistles. And we form the beloved community. Now, my mother always started her prayers, our loving Heavenly Father, and hearing this so often helped shape my view of God as Father who loves us. And filled with his love for us, we love him back by loving others in the beloved community. And I'm grateful for those who have loved me by pulling me into their families in the various places I've lived around the world. I'm grateful to those of you who offer this love to others. Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The early church became known for its love for one another. And the non-Christian world found this very odd. Why would you love people this way with whom you did not share family connection, who were not your blood? It was beyond their comprehension. 30 years ago, a prominent sociology professor wrote a book published by a major university press about the sociology of the early church called The Rise of Christianity. And uh, Rodney Stark, at the time of writing, was an agnostic, but he came to faith afterwards. And I like to think he came to faith as a result of writing this book. And he wrote this of the early church. Again, this is an unbelieving sociologist, prominent professor. The Christian teaching that God loves those who love him was alien to pagan beliefs. Equally alien to paganism was the notion that God, because God loves humanity, Christians cannot please God unless they love one another. Indeed, as God demonstrates his love through sacrifice, humans must also demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one another. Moreover, such responsibilities were be, to be extended beyond the bonds of family and tribe. Indeed, to all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These were revolutionary ideas. And then in the fourth century, uh, the Roman emperor, who's gone down in history as Julian the Apostate, tried to revive paganism to compete with Christianity, to offer a viable uh, alternative. And uh, Stark writes, he agreed, that is Julian, that Christians devoted themselves to philanthropy and urged pagan priests to compete. Julian soon found that the means for reform were lacking. 
Paganism had failed to develop the kind of voluntary system of good works that Christians had been constructing for more than three centuries. Moreover, paganism lacked the religious ideas that would have made such organized efforts plausible. So paganism lacked a sufficient engine to drive such loving behavior to those beyond our immediate family, to those beyond our blood. But among Christians, there was the engine, the Holy Spirit, coupled with this understanding that fellow believers are kin, close kin, brothers and sisters. So the preacher knows of the acts of service of his readers in the past and in the present. And he knows that this is the outworking of their love for God and that they are doing so unto God's name, that is, for God's name's sake. God's name is exalted and honored by their love expressed in acts of service towards their new family. And seeing this, the preacher is confident of their standing and their future. So you can sense him beaming with pride and pleasure, like a teacher delighting in evident transformation in her students. And he writes that God will not be unjust. God sees their behavior. He knows what is motivating it. He knows it is flowing out of love for him. And he will not forget or ignore it. So it's a great comfort to know that God sees. God sees what others may not see. Your service to others may be unseen, done in secret, but God sees. You may feel underappreciated, but God sees and appreciates. He will not forget. So we see here that the preacher is confident about his readers and pleased about their love for God and their love for the Christian neighbor. But he also wants to spur them on for the future. So he next expresses his further aspirations for them. Verses 11 and 12. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. We want. Well, I think we want is a little weak for a verb that means intense desire. The good teacher doesn't simply want something for her students. A good teacher has passion. We passionately want is how the Net Bible renders this. And I know that's just about right. That's more like it. The preacher has a deep passion for his readers that they keep doing what they have been doing, that they show the same diligence. Perhaps this word also uh, could stand a little bit of improvement, a better rendering. Diligence conveys the sense of duty. What the preacher is calling for is eagerness. Again, that's the Net Bible. It's an eager looking for opportunities to fulfill a responsibility. Because eagerness is about joy, not duty. Eagerness sees an opportunity rather than an obligation. Eagerness is delighted to serve rather than feeling it as a burden. And many of you have shown great eagerness to lovingly serve, both within the household of faith and beyond. You have served at Grace Village, where the renovation of a third unit is nearly complete. And it looks like uh, it may be the possibility of moving on to a fourth. Many of you have volunteered to serve when we host rotating safe car parks here. 
um, ministering to others. You have helped with Abrahamic Alliance projects, serving the poor and the unhoused. You have been eager to participate in acts of service and love. So thank you very much. And Ramadan begins in two weeks. And as we heard Christine announce, uh, we invite you to come here on uh, Wednesday, March the 3rd and hear Fuad Masri uh, share with us how to love our Muslim neighbors, especially at Ramadan. Now, the preacher deeply desires that his readers continue their eager service. And then he qualifies or elaborates this call with three forward-looking clauses. There is a forward horizon into the future to their present acts of service. The first forward-looking element is so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Our hope, which is as yet unrealized, will become reality, in which case it will no longer be hope. We, it will be achieved. Uh, meanwhile, we have full assurance of our hope, and we hold on to the conviction that God will fulfill his promises. An eager service to the saints is thus an eschatological activity. It is an action that has a foot in the future because the church is an eschatological community. Which means it's a colony of the future living here in the present, as well as a colony of heaven living here on earth. This is a striking way of thinking about our loving service to one another as our reciprocation of love to God. It is actualizing our hope. The second forward-looking element is to the very end. And again, we have this word end, which the preacher has used throughout this exhortation. And several times now, he has expressed his desire that the readers keep moving forward from the beginning all the way to the end, for the end is the goal, the terminus. Because the Christian life is a journey. It's a journey from beginning to end. It is a pilgrimage. And we continue in loving service to others all the way to journey's end. And journey's end is also the realization of our hopes, the day when God's promises are fulfilled. And then the third forward-looking element is a purpose or result clause, so that you do not be or become lazy. And lazy is the exact same word the preacher used at the beginning of the exhortation in 5.11, where he despaired of his reader's ability to understand because they had become lazy of hearing. So this diligence or eagerness he is urging upon them is the opposite of laziness. And it will assure they're not beset by laziness. And instead of being lazy, he wants his readers to be imitators of those who are ahead of them those who are already entering into the realization of hope, those who are inheriting the promises. Jesus told his disciples, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. But Western individuality prizes originality and authenticity. But ancient education valued conformity to an acknowledged master. So Paul received a rabbinic training at the feet of Gamaliel, where he absorbed all that he could so as to become like his master. And no doubt, he would have become a rabbi himself, a rabbi after the pattern of Gamaliel. 
but a new master encountered him, one whom he spent the rest of his life seeking to imitate. He sought to conform his life to Jesus, and in turn, he became a model for others. He wrote to the Corinthians, be imitators of me, just as also I am of Christ. And we heard from our reading from 1 Thessalonians 1, this language of imitation being used, to be called to be imitators. So a truly authentic human is one who is conformed to Christ, for he is the true human. And the preacher calls his readers to imitate those who are inheriting the promises. So entrance into the inheritance and fulfillment of the promise lies at the end, the end of the spiritual pilgrimage. And in Hebrews, this is salvation all the way to the end. We do not immediately attain the promises when we start the journey. The journey itself may be difficult. There may be suffering and hardships. There may be temptations to give up or we may lose focus and drift away. And the preacher says that inheritance of the promises is through faith and patience. When the going is smooth, it's easy to be faithful. But it is another matter when the going is tough. And that's when faithfulness is really called for. We remain loyal to Jesus, even when it is difficult and we might doubt. We persevere. And we can put these two words together. Throughout the days of our earthly pilgrimage, we show faithful perseverance and persevering faithfulness. So who are these people that are inheriting the promises? Well, a prominent example is Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham is the topic of the next paragraph, chapter six, verses 13 to 20, that we will look at next week. So this is a transition marker into that uh, section about Abraham. And then later, the preacher gives a long list of these people. Chapter 11, which is often called the Hall of Faith. And he brackets that chapter with a call for endurance or perseverance. So before it, in 1036, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then after the, this hall of faith, the beginning of chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So the faithful saints of chapter 11 are this great cloud of witnesses, a stadium full of spectators. They have finished the course. They have run with perseverance the race. And now they are watching us run the race and cheering us on. Now yesterday I attended a memorial service up at uh, PBC in Palo Alto and these familiar words were read, written by Paul at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. That's the crown, the crown of the victor, the crown of the one who finishes the race and wins the race, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So how do we nurture such faithful perseverance? Well, the preacher continues with the next verse in Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Christ before us. Christ before us is the object of our gaze and our devotion. The one whom we imitate. And Christ before us is the one who has gone before us and finished the course, entering into God's presence. And then we meet together regularly to encourage one another to keep moving forward in this journey to the finish line. And we show our love for God by loving one another. Do I invite the uh, band or the uh, music team up? So last week, we noted that the severe warning of that uh, 6, 4 through 8 has implications for the doctrines of eternal security and perseverance of the saints. The preacher is determined that his readers persevere all the way to the end. And in this current exhortation, he has taken his readers on quite a roller coaster. Initial doubt about their capacity for learning, uh, then a challenge to move forward with him, an extreme warning of the consequences for not moving forward, ending with confidence and a passionate desire for them to continue their current progress. He loves them dearly and believes them capable of faithful perseverance. The saints will persevere. So well done, beloved community. Let us carry on together. Amen. Lord God, the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the hearts that serve you, help us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you. Whom to serve is perfect freedom. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, the participation in our lives of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.